and welcome back to the Airport Wild Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to go way in-depth on trail cameras with Janet Pisaturo. Uh, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about everything from what a trail camera is, different parts of a trail camera setup, to some tips and tricks for you guys and how to set up in order to get those best shots for your airports or just if you want to run trail cameras as a personal endeavor. So sit back, relax. Please don't forget to hit that like, share, or subscribe button and uh, enjoy the show. Yeah, so thank you, Janet, for coming on today. Uh, My pleasure. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to what we're going to talk about here. Today's topic is is trail cameras, and, uh, well, I mean, you're going to be our expert. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> um, so let's just, you know, jump right into it. You know, it's the, it's the intro, so I'm going to go start with an intro. Um, maybe, Janet, like, give us some background about yourself and maybe, like, how long you've been running trail cameras and... Okay, sure. Um, so I think I started using trail cameras probably around 2005-ish, a little after I started getting into wildlife tracking as a hobby. <clears throat> my my old field, my original field was actually psychiatry, and I was a practicing psychiatrist for about 10 years and then left that to bring up with my kids. And then um, these are the things I took on as hobbies that then became obsessions. Um, so um, at first I was using trail cameras just very casually. Um, it was just a way to actually observe what I could only imagine by tracking wildlife. I got to see the behaviors that I could only kind of infer from what I saw out in the field. So I thought that was really cool. And then gradually it became an obsession. And now I teach wildlife tracking and camera trapping and um, I write about it, I blog about it. Um, and, you know, it's just sort of a hobby. I'm sort of self-employed, um, kind of semi-retired. And um, I, um, in 2010, I went back to school late in life to get a master's in conservation biology, which really kind of took both tracking and camera trapping to a new level for me, my, my teaching and writing about it. Um, so so that's, that's where I am. <laughs> um, I published a book. Um, um, in 2018 on uh, camera trapping um, the wildlife of the eastern U.S. and currently I'm working on one for the west but that's sort of on hold a bit now because of the pandemic and uh, it requires a lot of travel. I live in the northeast and I need to be traveling out west which I can't do right now. So. Right oh and um was it called wildlife of the east or what was the title of your book? Um, camera trapping guide tracks sign and behavior of eastern wildlife very nice um uh and then is when you're doing all this is there i mean I, i'm assuming you're kind of a generalist with what kind of wildlife you're looking looking for or do you have like kind of like a pet species you know you try to find on um, others yeah i am more of a generalist although i'm very specific in terms of i i want to so since i've decided to write these books about it i need to learn how to camera trap each species and you know all their different behaviors so i might focus on one species and um, try to get it scent marking and 
hunting or foraging or whatever, depending on the kind of animal it is, um, and just try to capture all its behaviors so I can explain to people how to go about doing that. No, you know what I mean. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, that's and that's and that's something you don't I, like in in my uses of trail cameras is something I don't ever think about is so you're actually using these trail cameras to looking for a specific behavior, not just looking for often the animal. I, so. I often I do that. Sometimes I do look for general hot spots if I just want, um, you know, a, a place where there's a lot of wildlife, a lot of different wildlife. Those make for entertaining videos. It's always interesting to see, you know, maybe some interspecies behavior um, if you have a, a hot spot like that. But often I'm um, I'm uh, focusing on a specific species and looking for a behavior like a bear at a marking tree. Bears have these trees, you know, special trees from the bear's perspective where they go rub themselves, they bite and they claw at it, and they keep go repeatedly to the same trees and multiple individuals go to that, you know, the same tree. So if you find a tree like that, you can target that with your camera and get really interesting bear behavior. So that's very specific as opposed to, you know, like a trail junction or something um, where you get a lot of different wildlife walking by. Right. And that's kind of what I'm more used to is, you know, trying to find these intersections and, and uh, especially where intersections and edges, you know, trying to get that as just kind of seeing what's out there more than anything right. else. I imagine for you know, somebody doing airport wildlife, you want to it's you just want to detect presence of the species. So you're looking for those general hotspots. Yeah. Right. And then, yes, yeah, so we probably have to bring this right back to the airport stuff. So. Yeah. Let's dive right into the cameras themselves. Okay. Um, like, I just kind of want maybe go over some basics. Of like, like, what do you look for? Like, say, all right, so you got, you're, you're in the market, going to buy a brand new camera. Um, yeah. Maybe something basic, you know, something you don't mind if it gets, you know, bumped or beaten or, or whatever. Um, what do you look for? To, like, what separates a good camera from, call it, maybe call it a junker? Well, first of all, the, the 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 cheap ones now are getting better and better. Um, they're you know every year the cheap models are better. So I don't know if there's a real dis division between junkies and 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 good ones. Um, uh, let's see where to start. So I guess I would recommend for somebody just starting with a trail camera to to go with a cheap one. And if um, if it works for you, if you like it and you're going to keep using them, then you might want to upgrade it. And if you decide not to use them, you won't have wasted so much money. Um, just beware that a lot of these cheap cameras, though, you'll go on Amazon and it'll be a $50 camera and it'll have, you know, 3,000 reviews where most of them are five star. Those are mostly fake. <laughs> these are um, these are the companies of these cheap Chinese cameras aggressively get people to write them good reviews They in exchange for um, free merchandise. So that's going to be different from what, what it looks like. It's an amazing camera. It's only 50 bucks and it has all these wonderful five-star reviews and compare it to a well-known uh, brand like Browning or Reconyx, which will have much worse reviews because they're people who are experienced and really critically reviewing them, uh, but they're actually much better cameras. So Amazon is really not a good place to um, to um, believe what you see <laughs> for those. I, I can testify to that. I've actually purchased those really cheap cameras and got yeah. words in there saying, if you leave us a review, we'll and take a picture yeah. of it, send it to this email address, we'll send you something free. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, um, I've tested out a lot of those cheaper end ones, and there's some that that work pretty good, and then some some of them. Um, 
you know, that I've had bad experiences with as well. So. Yeah, so the specs might be good. It might look like um, the trigger speed is good and all that, and the image quality might look okay when you look at the sample photos, but a lot of them break after a few months. So yeah. you kind of get what you paid for. I would say, I guess, um, you know, some people have gotten those cheap ones and said they worked for a year or more, but I would say that quality control is poor for those and, you know, sort of the rate of getting a quote lemon is very high with those cameras. Whereas if you go with a name brand, you're more likely to get one that will last you for, for years. So, yeah. so uh, speaking uh, of specs, um, I, I'm sorry, Jesse, if you already had this question lined up, but what's what specific spec should someone be looking at? What's a good spec versus a bad spec as far okay. as um, trigger speed, uh, yep. pixels, um, and okay. Okay, well, let's start with trigger speed. Um, the trigger speed, or it's really more accurately called a trigger delay, and that's the time between the moment the camera detects an animal and the moment it takes a, a picture. Okay, just for people who aren't familiar with these, there's a little bit of a delay there. Um, in this day and age, uh, most of the cameras have a trigger delay or trigger speed of less than a second, and that's very good. A less than a half a second is excellent. Um, and then there's um, then there's the delay between. Uh, it's called the recovery speed. It's a delay between triggers. So the camera takes a photo or a video, and then it needs some time to recover before it can take another one. So even if the animal's still there, it might not trigger immediately. And um, the you know something less than two seconds or for video, less than two seconds for video, and less than a second for. Um, photos is good. Generally, the uh, video trigger speed and recovery speed are slightly slower than photo um, trigger speed and recovery speed. Right, um, much larger file sizes is trying to store away. And um, do you notice a difference between, like, with even with you're running your different SD cards? With does that help your your recovery speed at all? If you run like a better card in a camera, I hmm. I don't know. I only use SanDisk. I don't think that's, as long as you use a respectable one, I don't think that affects it very much. Um, some some of the companies, though, what they, what they report for their recovery speed is not exactly honest. They don't count the time it takes the camera to write to the card. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they might say the recovery speed's only a second, but it's actually five seconds because I've tested some of those. So um, a really good place to look for that, um, these comparisons of trigger and recovery speed and, and other specs, is a site called trailcampro.com. They have very detailed reviews of many different camera models, not all of them, but a lot of them. And they really break it down. You know, they, um, they, they really do very thorough tests and reviews, and you can compare one to another. So that's a great site to know about. So that's trigger and recovery speed. You also, of course, want to look at image quality, both photo and video quality. And the best way to do that is just look at examples. Um, Trailcam Pro also has um, examples for many of the cameras that they review of the photos and the videos that they take. Um, and uh, video quality and photo quality can be very different for the same camera. So you want to want to look at what you're most interested in. If you're going to be taking videos, look at the video quality. Um, and then you also, um, if you're if you're interested in video, audio might be important for you, depending on what you're doing with the camera. So you want to, you know, 
uh, listen to samples of that, how good is the audio? Um, it used to be most of the models in the past had very, very poor audio, but some of them are getting really good right now. Again, this I, I mentioned Browning, they have really, really good audio. Um, just for kind of a general all-round middle-of-the-road camera, I love the Browning um, Recon Force and the Browning Spec Ops, and they run around $200 or a little bit less. Um, they tend to last. I've had very few problems with them, and um, they're very fast cameras. The image quality is excellent. Um, the two I mentioned have different flash types, and we can talk about that as another thing to look at oh, when, yeah. um, when you're uh, looking for a camera. So you want to move into flash type? Or, yeah, we're already there. <laughs> okay. All right. So um, two main types uh, are IR flashes, infrared flashes, uh, versus white flashes. And within infrared, there are two main types of those. There's a so-called no-glow infrared flash, which is basically all infrared light. The flash is only infrared light. And if you remember from high school physics, infrared light is not visible. It's not in the visible range. So people and animals generally cannot see it. Um, so that's an advantage for animals that are easily spooked, like coyotes, for example. Um, they tend to be very wary. Uh, and also for potential human thieves, they can't see the camera at night. Um, then, uh, so an IR flash, I should say, gives you only black and white images. And they're they tend to be grainy. So that's the trade-off. It's great because nobody can see it, um, neither animals nor people, but it's um, the negative is that the photos aren't, aren't very good, the night photos. Of course, your day photos will still be in color. And then there's a so-called low glow or red glow infrared flash. And that has a little bit of red light in it. So that's visible. You can see a little bit of red light. Depending on the camera, you might be able to see a lot of red light. And the advantage to that is you get much, it's still black and white. The, the nighttime images, but you get much better quality. They're much sharper. Um, so it depends on how, and, and animals notice them, and it depends on the species and also the individual animal um, and the environment you're in, whether they're going to care about that. I imagine animals around the airport are probably used to all kinds of lights and noises, so it's possible that they're, you know, any species would just ignore, um, you know, not, not care about uh, the flashes there. And then there are um, very few cam most people like the infrared flashes, um, but there are a few models with white flashes. And um, obviously they take color photos at night because it's a regular visible white flash. Um, but there are two types of those two. There's an LED white flash and a xenon white flash. Um, the LED flash uh, can be on continuously, which means that you can get color videos with an LED a xenon white flash is just a sudden flash and then it turns off. So it only takes um, color photos at night. It can't take, it cannot take color videos. So such a camera maybe doesn't, you know, a trail camera with a xenon white flash might not be able to take video at all, or maybe it'll switch to um, an IR, uh, let's say, yeah, an IR flash at nighttime and give you, uh, for, for the videos and give you black and white videos, but um, color photos. So those are the flash options. And is it would it be more common to find maybe like the xenons and like more like the lower end cameras versus uh, maybe yeah it's hard to generalize because there are so few I mean there are so few white flash cameras available but um, as you mentioned it I think that the uh, only cheapy 
white flash camera I know of is a Xenon. I have um, a white flash Reconyx, which is an expensive camera that um, does take nighttime video, it has the LED flash. Um, but there just aren't that many white flash. Just okay. because I think they're mostly, trail cameras, as you know, are mostly or were mostly used for hunting. And what was important to hunters was to keep the um, the camera kind of unnoticed by animals, but people now are using them for all different reasons, including researchers who want to, uh, they want very detailed night pictures so they can look at like markings on the animals and distinguish um, between individuals and that kind of thing. Yeah, I remember I used to work on a project in New York where we, um, well, we were doing fisher research, we were using uh, Brownings and, and Reconyxes to to uh, use, get check camera presence absence mostly. Yeah. Of, of Fisher in the Adirondack Mountains. Um, remember, there was a lot of talk about uh, using the same cameras for Pine Martin research, wow. but they were using better cameras for the Pine Martins because you can tell individuals by the oh, white blaze on the chest. Yeah, yeah, the, the throat. The, um, yeah, yeah, the markings on the throat. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, so it's definitely... So, I mean, it's not just going out, you know, just to kind of summarize what we've got so far is you pretty much... There's... Re there's reasons there's differences out there um right. so, you know if you're if somebody just wants to grab a camera that's fine well but you can really customize these customize these for what your your goal is in a way yeah there's a lot of a lot of different things you also might want to particularly for your airport biology you might want to um, consider the detection range of the camera so that's not important to me but it might be important to you so some cameras might have a detection range that only goes out to 50 feet, meaning that it, it will trigger for an animal that's 50 feet away, up to 50 feet away. Another one might trigger for an animal that's up to 100 feet away. And if you're looking for presence absence data, you probably want to get as much data as you can. You know, whereas if you're like me, I don't really care. I, I just I don't want it to trigger unless it's going to be a good photo. So if something's 100 feet away, I'd rather have it not take a picture. Right, because that's going to give you those kind of those false images too. If you get, you know, right. I'm I'm kind of thinking like if you get a, you're you're running those a hundred footer, yeah. But you're in, you know, very tight cover. Um, you're not going to be able to clear up. You know, if you get get any wind or anything, you're going to make all these, all yeah, these so shots just taken off. Yeah, right, right. So we can talk about we can when we get to that we can talk about how to how to deal with that too. Yeah, that's true. And what are the other things? Oh, and um, just a couple of other things on choosing a camera. Um, the user interface is, is important to some people who aren't really technically inclined. Um, some of them have very clunky, awkward user interfaces, and other ones have nice, intuitive user interfaces. And of course, you can't know that really except by talking to people and asking them you know, what it's like to, to program, you know, reading reviews and that kind of stuff. Um, but it does make a difference, you know, a really difficult to use camera um, might mean that a person just leaves it on the shelf <laughs> after the first time. Right, get frustrated. <laughs> yeah, some of them can be very frustrating and inscrutable. Um, and the instruction manual sounds like it's been translated to seven different languages before they got to English. So it's kind of nice to have one that's just intuitive that you can just um, figure out. Right. So and and I don't want to push a particular brand, but I will say that, so that Fisher, I'm just re re referencing that Fisher project I was on. We used Brownings. They were the older Brownings. Um, uh, I think at the, at the time they were going for like 120 bucks. So they're one of the yeah. lower ends. This is, this is five, six years ago. I mean, our prices have gone down since then. Yeah. Um, but even then it was only a $120 camera. Um, I can't remember what the model was though off the top of my head, but it had a little screen on, on the front. Yeah. So you could, 
And for us, we were, you know, we were putting bait on a tree and, you know, trying to line these, you know, had to line up the shot just right. Yeah. And with the brownings, man, we could line them up and you'd be in and out of a spot in 10 minutes. You know, yeah. that's baited yeah. and gone. Right. We so reconnoix- yeah, we were in reconnaissance at the same time. So we had a mixed bag of brownings and reconnaissance. Reconnaissance, you had to go in there, take a test shot, yeah. take it out, put it in a camera, look at it, or like a photo camera. You know, point, yeah. point and click, and you know it was just you're in the same spot for half an hour sometimes right. trying to get the right shot lined up. Yeah, the older Reconyx, I think I have one of those that you're talking about. It's a very clunky camera. I hate it, but it's it's an old <laughs> camera. It's outdated, but I the newer ones are much better. I love my Reconyx Ultrafire, which is really really a dream to use. It's very easy to use. It also has a viewing screen, but a viewing screen is a really good thing. Uh, get, you know, a really good point in terms of choosing a camera. Not all of them have a viewing screen. Um, where you can actually see the images and you know the, uh, when you go and pick up your camera. So actually, so at this point, I don't even I wouldn't even buy a camera that doesn't have a viewing screen because it's so um, it's so convenient to be able to quickly go through and and uh, and uh, and see the photos when uh, when you pick up your camera. So it's a really cool thing to have too. Um, another mm-hmm. really simple thing that people don't nobody thinks of this when they go buy a camera. And if you're ordering it online, you won't even be able to see whether it has this or not. Um, if you're going to want to secure your camera with a lock, like with a cable lock, um, you need to make sure there are holes that in the back of the camera to thread the lock through. I noticed that a lot of the cheap ones, um, like the $50 cameras, don't have that. So you can't lock it if you want to. And um, if you're going to need a security box for it, and that's a metal box that encases the camera that keeps it helps prevent theft or damaged by animals. Um, they don't make security boxes for every model, particularly the real cheap ones, you can't get one for it. So you wanna make sure that there's one made for the model you get if that's important to you. Right, and that's something that like in states where, cause I've always heard that was referred to as bear boxes. Yeah, right. Um, so I mean, if, if you're in an area that's, that's heavy on bear, even if you're not expecting to be getting shots of bear, it's probably a good idea to you know to pick up a security box or a bear box. Right, or people, them or vandalizing them. I've had them, people have been more of a problem for me than bears, but yeah, they, people sometimes will, um, will steal the SD card, they'll open up the camera and turn it off or something. They do all kinds of stuff. So I don't, I hardly ever use them now without a security box and a lock. So yeah, because that's actually one thing I didn't think about before was, you know, how you're going to secure this thing to the, how, to the tree. Um, so do you do like, mostly a security box or do you do security box with a cable lock or like what's your what's your go-to for how to how to secure your camera so you i use a security box and then i use i usually thread a cable through it and cable it to a tree or or whatever a fence post whatever i'm cabling it to sometimes a rock um uh or um you can with a security box you can screw the back of the box in the the box is a two-piece thing and you can screw the back piece into the tree and then put the camera in, put the front on, and then you can put the padlock through another hole in the front. So you don't need a cable lock. You can use a cable lock in that situation for extra security, but a padlock is enough if you screw the back of the box. Because once you, you screw the back of the box in, you close up the box and you put the padlock in, nobody can open that box without breaking the padlock. So um, either way or both. Right, so that's another feature that well, you brought up that some of the maybe some of the lower end cameras, the cheaper ones, uh, uh, might not have that. Um, 
and I was just thinking, I'm looking at one of my notes here. I was, I was kind of wondering about any features that would might automatically disqualify uh, a camera from your selection choice. Um, you know, we talked about some of the features you do like. You know, like you're saying, like quicker than one second uh, uh, trigger speeds, or um, and one thing we haven't talked about is batteries yet. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, but is is there anything in that in a feature like if you're going through, you're looking online. That as soon as something pops up, you're like, nope, man, on to the next one. Yeah, all, basically all the things I said. If it if the trigger speed is slower than a second, it's a no. If it doesn't have a viewing screen where I can view the photos and videos that it takes in the field, it's a no. If I can't get a security box for it, it's a no. You know, so uh, yeah, that's what it has to have. But most of them, you know, if you're getting a name brand one, most of them have all those things. Right, they're going to come with that those extra yeah. features. Yeah. Um. So one other feature that I did I I wanted to do talk about though is the batteries. Um, do you have a particular? Because I remember when I first started running cameras, you know, a lot of them. I like my first one was it was an old film camera that was retro made into digital, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it ran off of I think it was four or five like D batteries. I mean, yeah. I think it was dinosaur age. Yeah. 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 And every every picture came out pink. It all had a always had a pink hue to it for some reason. Yeah. That's actually a specific problem. That was that's a um, a stuck IR filter. That's a problem. They, a lot of cameras have that problem, and when you have that problem, they usually the company will usually replace it because that's not supposed to be like that. Oh yeah, my I I don't know. I didn't I didn't know any better. I just yeah. That was that was my I throw that off to the side someplace and you know try to get photos of of just deer someplace with that yeah. one. But um, but with the batteries though, have you noticed? Do you have a preference on? Yes. No. Yeah. So yeah, what do you what do you for? Yeah. So for your listeners, I'll talk. I'll just tell them the three types that you can use. Um, you can use regular alkaline batteries. You can use lithium batteries, or you can use nickel metal hydride rechargeable batteries. Re rechargeable batteries sound wonderful because they're better environmentally and they're cheaper in the long run because you can keep recharging them. Obviously, the at the couple problems though. One is not all trail cameras are compatible with rechargeables. So if you want to use them that's yet another thing to look for when you before you buy the camera can you use rechargeables with it uh, and the other thing is if you're in a really cold climate uh, rechargeable batteries tend to drain quickly in a cold climate so they're not a great choice for that or if you're going to be leaving your camera for a very long time like months like i do sometimes even a year before you check it um, you're going to want longer lasting batteries rechargeable batteries generally don't last long enough for that um, that also, you know, how long the batteries last depends on how busy the spot is too. You know, the more activity there is going on, the more pictures it's taken, the more photos it's taken, the more often it's using the flash, the faster the batteries are going to drain out. So all those things you have to take into consideration. Um, and, you know, for me, the lithium batteries are the best because I want something that's going to last a long time no matter how busy the camera is. So I want to be able to come back in six months and have it not be dead <laughs> or just have died. Um, so with lithium, they they um, they sort of uh, they start out at a higher charge. They drain more slowly, and they don't drain quickly in cold weather like other batteries do. So right, which is you know half the nation pretty much is going to be dealing with that at some point of the yeah exactly. So for me, that's pretty much all I use. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, um, what about like do you have any preference on battery size? I mean, pretty much everybody's mostly running double A's I'd imagine right now. Most take most of them take either eight or twelve double A batteries. Yeah. I actually all the ones I have all the cameras I've ever had take um double A's. Double, yeah. 
Yeah, I had a few older um, personal cameras. I think they were wild games. They took C's, but I'm not even sure if they're make if they're uh, even making those models anymore. I mean, I'm talking a few years ago now. Yeah, wild games have been out for a little while. Or been yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so I don't. So I'm in Arizona. You know, we got uh, we we do run trail cameras here, but like you mentioned, we have a big thieving problem if you're up in the mountains. Yeah. So I haven't been running. I've I've kind of been out of the game for a year or so. I got some ones for work, but um. Uh, so somebody's gone out. I'm just kind of as sum this all up. You know, somebody's gone out. They've picked out their camera. They've got good trigger speed. They've got uh, you know, they got a good camera. They got a good setup. So now they can actually go out and place it. Okay. Um, what do you look for uh, in a general spot? Um, you're not looking for a particular species or behavior. Okay. Um, can yeah, I back for? up for a second? Just, I just want to back up for a second because I think a huge frustration is that people take their new camera and they go right out in the field and they come back a month later and there's no pictures on it because – there could be many things wrong, but they re- what they really need to do before they put it out is make sure they understand how the settings would work and make sure they have right. it set properly for what they want to do. Because, uh, as I said, the user interface for some of these cameras isn't isn't tremendously wonderful. <laughs> so it's easy, really easy to make a mistake. And it's even easy to make a mistake if the user interface is good and you're experienced. So you want to familiarize yourself with it really well in your house or out in your backyard before you leave it somewhere for a long time. Um, just wanted to make that point. So now do we want to? Yeah. Um, no, I think that's really good. I mean, no, just setting up in the backyard, getting shots of the dog or the kids or something, just yeah. you know, making sure you understand it when they're running past. And, yep. um, and uh, sure it works. You want to make sure it's working properly, you know, so that, um, you know, right. you know out six months well, later, you pick up your camera. Always remember to turn it on. Always remember to turn it on. Yeah, one of the things to do before you walk away from it is um, remember to turn it on. You want to remember to format that SD card um, uh, in the camera. Um, I don't know if people uh, people generally know about that, but you um, formatting the card is the same as deleting. Um, so you have to format it, i.e. delete, uh, before you can use it in that camera. If it's been in any other device, so if it's been in your laptop and you've downloaded the pictures, after that you want to format it in the camera that you're going to use it in. So all the cameras will have a, an option to either delete or format. They mean the same thing. And do that before you turn the camera on and, and leave. Um, yes. Yeah, so right, because that, cause that camera is going to be opening, and, and, opening and, and storing stuff in different files and folders and whatnot. Right, you want the software on the card to be compatible with the camera, so, and that's what formatting it in the, in the camera does, yeah. Um, okay, so then what was your question? <laughs> well, I, I, um, actually, I was thinking about something else. Is, uh, so why don't we talk about some of the other settings before we actually go out and place the camera, you know, on a tree someplace. So, I mean... When you're running, I mean, do you have any preference between, you know, taking shots, like single shot burst, um, uh, video? I mean, what do you prefer? Right. So, well, it really, what you prefer depends on how you're using it. And I've used the cameras for different things. So if you're interested in presence, absence data, you just want to document whatever is there, right? Um, and you don't care about how, you don't need a beautiful photo. You just need to be able to say that animal's there. Uh, probably single shot is with the minimum trigger speed, with the minimum trigger delay, because you can set a delay for longer if you want. 
Yeah. Um, but single shot with a minimum trigger speed is probably um, adequate and economical, right? Um, if I want to get a beautiful picture of something, I'm going to put it on a, a multi-shot or a burst mode where every time it detects an animal, it's going to go bing, bing, bing and take a whole bunch of photos of that animal and maybe, maybe one will come out nice. Maybe not. Uh, but that's a waste if you're just trying to document presence absence. Why would you fill up your card and waste your batteries on that? Um, right. That's what I do. I put it on, you know, I'll put it on a rapid fire for nine or ten shots and get a whole bunch to pick from or use it on video. And even if you're interested more in still images, you can take um, frames from the video and uh, and use those as stills. Yeah, just taking a screen grab kind of thing. Yeah, I have a I have a speaking of that. I have a friend that uses trail cameras a lot and he insists on everything being video now because of trigger speeds and right. what happens if you take, you know, one animal comes in and you, it takes that picture, but there's some other more interesting animal right behind it. So, but the, the difficulty I found with, with once, once you switch over to the video is going through all those pictures. It yeah, so like going through all it, it also burns out the battery faster, fills up the card a lot more. Mm -hmm. I also actually use video almost entirely now, partly because I'm most interested in uh, the behavior of the animal. Um, but also because if I, even if I do just want a really beautiful still photo, I have many more frames to pick from if I have it on video than if I'm just taking a shot. Um, but, you know, if I wanted to save money and I just needed to document something, I'd probably just put it on single photo. Uh, it's, I think it's very unlikely that you're going to miss an animal like that during the delay period. That's a, that's a very unlikely event. It's going to come and disappear during the recovery phase of the camera. Mm -hmm. Right. And then one more thing we never actually talked about is um, what size, do you have a preferable size of SD card that you like to use? That's a, good, that's a good one to bring up too. Um, so most of them, or at least the ones that I'm familiar with, will take at least, will, will take up to a maximum of a 32 gigabyte or gigabyte, however you pronounce it. Yeah. Um, and I always use the maximum in there because I tend to leave my cameras for a long time. I tend to put them on video. So the cards do get filled up quickly. Um, if you want something bigger than 32, then you need to look specifically when you buy the camera, can it take something bigger than that? The Brownings and Reconics actually do take bigger cards. They take at least 64s. I think they actually take 256s or something like that. But many, many of the other models only take up to a 32. Um, so it's, you know, again, it's how you're going to use the camera. Right. Cause I mean, I remember we always ran a lot of, yeah, a lot of 16s and 32s, Yeah. but we were, they were getting checked every other week. Also. Oh so yeah. So you, that was overkill. <laughs> yeah. For the most part, but we were, you know, running, uh, I think it was three shot burst on a 10 second delay. Yeah. You know, so if you, I mean, we get hundreds of photos of the same fisher on bait if you stuck around long enough. Right. 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 Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so I guess now we've, we've kind of gone back far enough. Um, so let's go back to, uh, you know, maybe locations, um, like, like maybe not specific locations, but like uh, maybe landscape features okay. that you look for. Okay, so yeah, so again, it depends on your goals. So if you're interested in 
presence absence, you want to document as many species as possible. And I'm assuming you're interested, the people are mostly interested in something larger than a squirrel. You don't have to document all the squirrels. You want to get um, you know, the larger animals. Um, many of those animals use trails with their animal trails or people trails or both. They use them. Um, and so trails and trail junctions are very productive spots if you just want to document as many animals as possible. Um, interesting ways, interesting other ways to get a lot of activity is like at a, a log crossing over water, something that the animals can use as a bridge to cross over water. And you have to think about, you know, it's not just any old log over the water. You want to think carefully about whether is this going to be a log that a lot of animals use? And so the way you think that through is, well, if it's, you know, if this is the best and really the only way that an animal can easily cross the water, it's a good spot. So if it's the if it's a big, thick log and it's the only one there that's crossing the water, it's probably going to be very productive. But if it's a little skinny log, then only the smaller animals are going to use it. If there are 10 other logs crossing the water right near it, um, then you're only going to get a little bit of activity at one spot. So you really want to look for like the, you know, the best way for animals to cross the water. And that's a big, thick log that's not near any other crossings. And right. Cause, I mean, I guess the, the phrase that, that comes to mind from, for me is on um, the path of least resistance. They're going to go yeah. Um, yeah. to remember as a kid, dad always, when I, when I was learning tracking um, as a kid, uh, I was always told a fox hates to get his feet wet. Yeah. Um, so that's just one that I've, I've always grown up with and, you know, it, it, you know, extrapolates into other animals too, but, um, that's what I was taught first on tracking was a lot of foxes. Um, and the cats really like to use log crossings. Bears actually use log crossings quite a lot too. Yeah. Uh, even, even coyotes we use them, but, um, the cats yeah. really like log walking. Fishers. Yeah. So those are, those are popular spots. A really, really popular spot may not be that relevant. It's not relevant for, um, for airport stuff, but a really productive spot for anybody who's just interested in seeing a lot of wildlife and learning about a, learning a lot about wildlife is a beaver dam. And they're very easy to find and identify. So you don't have to know anything about tracking. You find a beaver dam and you, you target that with your camera and many, many animals use those as crossing structures to cross the water. And other species that don't use those dams as bridge, bridges are attracted to them for other reasons. So like otters and mink tend to do a lot around beaver dam near beaver dams. They they hunt for fish uh, in the ponds right near the dam. A lot of times they haul out right near the dam for whatever reason. I'm not exactly sure, but they love to haul out around there. You'll find otter latrines, meaning collections of their staff, um, right near the dam. So they'll they'll actually loaf around on on the shore right near the dam quite frequently. Um, and then obviously the beaver itself is working on the dam. So you'll get so you really can get a lot of activity. It's probably the most gratifying um, spot that's easy to find for a beginner to just get lots of wildlife. And then one that uh, you haven't mentioned yet that always comes to my mind too is edges. Yeah, uh, so edges like a like a edges between two different types of habitat, like a field and a forest, or wetland and a forest, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot uh, of animals kind of travel along the edges. Yeah, because I've noticed even deer will use even um, if you have two different types of trees, like a soft edge, 
uh, yeah. in, in a forest, um, you know, where pines might meet up against uh, maple, you know, hard hardwood versus softwood. Um, I've mm -hmm. even seen them travel along those. Uh, yeah, that's what I, yeah, and it probably makes a lot of sense. You want to, when you put this out, you want to kind of think about the animal that you're most interested in and where they would go. So a deer is probably feeding more in the hardwood area, yeah. um, but maybe likes to be near the, the softwoods because it's good cover there. You know what yeah. I mean? So that would be a good place for a deer to be walking. So right. just try to think about, yeah, yeah. think about the animal you're interested in. How are they going to use the landscape? Um, you got anything you want to add in there, Cody? No, no. I think uh, no. I think we're, we're on the right track. Um, I guess uh, um, some questions I might have coming up are uh, um, we talked about initial camera setup or no. Um, camera um and, and if i'm going off track just 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 to hold off on these until you you're ready for them but um you know camera aiming okay do we want to do that now or should i talk about we talked about general hotspots do you want to talk a little about specific hotspots or do that later like if you're actually yeah no let's yeah let's do the specifics and then we'll go into the maybe okay. the camera positioning and aiming in a bit okay. all right so specifics this is where um if you're interested in a certain species or even to get even more specific than that a certain behavior this is where you kind of need to know something about um the track, you know, you need to know how to read the animal's tracks and scat and feeding sign and so forth, other other kinds of signs that they leave in order to to target something like this. Um, you might need to know what its den looks like. So, um, I, you know, oh dear, sorry, a hummingbird just flew against my window. <laughs> it's just weird. But um, I heard that one. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so yeah, you want to be able to identify these different things so that you can find them. And um, it can be very productive depending on what your goal is to target an animal's den. You know, dens can be all different kinds of things. They can be holes in the ground. They can be rock caves or crevices. They can be the space under your shed, um, you know, whatever, all kinds of spaces that animals use. And you just need to know what kind of space your target animal uses. Uh, or you might want to know how it forages, how it hunts, what it, you know, what it hunts for, what it forages for, and how to find those places where there's a high density of its food resources. Uh, you might want to know what its food caches look like. Uh, food caches are wonderful places to put cameras because um, not just the animal that created that cache, but lots of other animals who want to steal it will also come, <laughs> come to that spot. So that's sort of a, another hotspot too. Can you maybe give a couple of examples of like who would make a cache and who might yeah. try to make a cache? This is one that people don't really think about that much, but a, a, a certain rodent, a red squirrel, makes very large food caches and a lot of other animals steal them. If it's a, if it's a cache of like, so red squirrels are thought of as mostly uh, squirrels of coniferous forests where they store a lot of pine cones, but they are actually more generalist than that. In a lot of locations, they will 
store large quantities of nuts like acorns, hickory nuts, whatever. And those kind of caches are valuable to many species. Bears eat those, fishers will eat those, deer. So if you find a nice big cache of nuts um, that a red squirrel has placed, um, you could target that and you could potentially get quite a lot of activity there. Um, and then uh, carnivores will sometimes cache their food. So I don't live in mountain lion country, but I know people who, who do. And they find, you know, the deer that mountain lion kill, they eat part of it, and then they cover it up with debris. Um, and, uh, and the cat will visit repeatedly and other animals come and try to steal it. Um, so that, those are examples of, of what I mean. Okay. Latrines are good sites for certain animals. That's where an animal poops repeatedly. <laughs> um, some animals just drop their scat at random or they might place it at trail junctions, depends on the species. Other animals have places that they go to repeatedly to, to poop. And um, those are great spots, obviously, because the animal is going to keep coming back. And they also are sometimes spots that attract different species who come and overmark, um, you know, to put their own scent. So, for example, the bobcat latrine, where 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 bobcat um, repeatedly drops its scat, um, might be overmarked by foxes or coyotes. Um, an otter latrine is one of my favorites. That's an accumulation of of otter scat. It's usually at a pond edge, often near a beaver dam. I mentioned before that they spend a lot of time near beaver dams, and the otters are very um, interesting and entertaining social creatures. That uh, and you can get quite a lot of interesting activity if you just target their latrine. Um, so those are examples of that. Um, let me think of what else. Another, oh, just thinking about hunting behavior, the way I got um, wolves out in, where was this, Minnesota? Um, I targeted, I, did, I had minimal time to track out there, uh, but um, I found a deer yard, lot, you know, tons of deer beds and lots of deer tracks and scat, really hot area for deer. And I just put um, a camera in the deer yard and got all these wolves coming through. Obviously, wolves hunt for deer, so they're going to be attracted to high concentrations of deer activity. That was much easier than like finding a wolf den or a wolf rendezvous. I just put it where all their prey is. Um, a way I got badgers is by targeting um, their favorite prey, which is burrowing mammals. So if you found, you know, like a prairie dog town, a ground squirrel colony, place with a lot of kangaroo rat activity. Those are all small burrowing rodents. Um, those tend to be very, very attractive for animals like the badger, which dig up burrowing rodents. Mm. So yeah, you just think about your animal. Where, where, what do they eat? Where are they hunting? Where are they going? How are they using the landscape? And that's how you determine. Um, and then learn how to recognize their tracks and scat and, uh, and other signs. So when you were learning this, do you have any guides that you like to use um, like for to learn your tracks or scat? Yeah, um, so let's see. I got two favorites or three favorites here for just for tracking now. So my favorite for the Eastern US was Paul Resendez's book. It was published in the 90s. It's called Tracking in the Art of Seeing. I have it right here. <laughs> this was a great one. It's still, it's a classic. Um, it's still, um, it's still, it's a little, some of it's a little bit outdated, but it's still extremely useful and it's very, very readable. Um, and then for, I hope I have the one I like for the West. I don't have that one handy. Um, I think it's called The Tracker's Field Guy by James Lowry. And both of these books, Paul Resendez's and James Lowry's books, 
are supposed to cover the whole U.S., but the fact is, is that Resendez was from the East, so his covers the East more thoroughly, and Lowry was from the West, and his covers the West more thoroughly. And then for the real fanatics who really get into tracking and want to learn the, the, the details, this is the Bible. It's, hold um, it a little closer to you. Yeah. yeah, can you bring it a little closer to this? No, her, hold it closer to herself. Cause oh, oh, me? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you see that? Oh, down a little Mark bit. Yeah. Rock, uh, uh, down a little bit. Down a little bit. <laughs> Mammal Tractor Sign by Mark Elbrock. Yeah, this is the Bible. And it's, it's a real thick tome. It's not something that anybody would read cover to cover, particularly not a beginner. But if you really, if you know, already know, you already have a working knowledge of track and sign of North American mammals, then this is like an encyclopedia that you can look up specific things in. That's what. Um, so none of these are geared specifically for camera trapping. So they don't necessarily focus on the kind of spots which make the best places for a camera, which is actually why I wrote my book. Um, because, but, but, you know, you'll get a long way just learning basic tracking. It'll take you a very long way uh, into improving your camera trapping skills. No, that's cool. Um, there's definitely some, a uh, bunch of copies that I think our listeners are going to kick out of and, and, you know, hopefully they'll pick up a few and, uh, cause I think that's a lot of this is, you know, it's, I don't know. I find it interesting. I've, of course, I've been oh, yeah. you know, doing the wildlife tracking since I was, I think dad started taking me out when I was like three or something. So I've been doing it a long time. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> and like a, uh, like a language for you. Yeah. You just kind of look over and just, it's kind of, yeah. Um, it can get, it can get fun at parties, but uh, <laughs> so going on from there. Um, so let's dive into what Cody was talking about earlier. Maybe like, how about actually setting up the camera itself? Like, um, trying to like get your get your aim down, and, and do you have any particular tips or tricks on how you like to set up your camera? Yeah. Um, so first of all, um, when you mount the camera, you want to mount it on something that is not going to sway at all in the wind. So a thin tree, for example, is not a good choice. If you can move the tree at all. <laughs> It will it will sway in in big wind and um, that's going to create relative motion and during the daytime um, so actually we didn't really talk about how trail camera sensors work but we should because that'll talk a lot about them that will help people understand the problem with moving vegetation so these cameras we call them motion sensitive it's a little bit of it's a little bit misleading the name. What they're detecting is a temperature difference between the subject and the background. So like a warm blooded animal comes into the scene, it's warmer than the, the background, the camera detects it and takes a photo. Um, generally, it, it, it sounds like it shouldn't be able to detect vegetation and at night it generally doesn't because the vegetation is the same temperature as the background, but on sunny days, um, the leaves and such can um, absorb some energy from the sun such that it's a little bit warmer than the environment around it. And when the wind blows that warmed vegetation, it can make the trigger, the camera trigger incessantly. 
Um, so if the camera, if the vegetation is stationary, but the camera is moving, <laughs> that can also um, make a trigger. Any relative motion between bodies of different temperatures is going to make that camera trigger. So you want your camera to be um, as still as possible. You don't want it on anything that's going to sway in the wind. Uh, and you're going to need to um, either put it in a pot, a place where, a spot where there's no vegetation or, you know, no waving around vegetation between the camera and your target spot, or you're going to have to clear that stuff. You know, you might need to trim grass or uh, trim a couple branches or whatever. And you also want to think about, well, what season am I in? Is this going to just all grow back in two weeks? And, you know, when am I going to come back and check the camera? Because, you know, I've, I've made that mistake before. I placed um, a camera out. I was trying to get moose in northern Maine. And um, it was I was there in early spring and it was still covered with snow. So the, I didn't know what the vegetation was going to look like around there. And I had my camera perfectly positioned and got beautiful moose photos for a while. But as soon as the snow melted and the vegetation grew up, it all engulfed my camera and made it it made the camera take 30,000 photos of just waving vegetation in like 24 hours. <laughs> and then the batteries were dead and the card was full. So, um, yeah, you know, that was because I couldn't come back to that spot for months. But um, so if you're able to check the camera very frequently, then maybe you don't care so much about having to trim the vegetation. Um, but if you're going to leave it for months, you don't want to have to, you don't want to leave it in a place where a lot of stuff is going to grow up within a few weeks. Right. And then as so clearing out, do you ever place your camera up high to try to get above the vegetation? Like, like I mean, way up? You up can. I don't because those get those just create ugly pictures. You know, if you're again, if you're interested in presence absence data, um, then that might be the thing for you. But if you want, you know, nice photos are more like at the, the animal's eye level, you know. Yeah. So, of course, that's another point in setting up the camera. You want to think about what's your target species and how high do you want it? You know, it's going to be really different if you're after moose versus if you're after, you know, otters down low at the ground. Yeah. Uh, you want to know. And, you know, at the airport, I don't know how you're, what are you most interested in, deer and coyote or something? Is that the? Yeah, it's, it's, it can, it can really vary. I mean, most, I mean, if you're finding moose in the airport, you probably don't need a trail camera to go find them. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, a lot of deer, coyotes, um, but you can get some smaller stuff. You might get otter passing through mink, uh, uh, but generally, it, most of your stuff is going to be between fox and deer in size. I see. Yeah. So that's that's pretty easy. So then, yeah. So you set the you set the height accordingly. So just think about the height of the animal that you're that you're that you're interested in. Yeah. Um, and that kind of goes into general photography. You know, kind of you know getting the eye. The right. eye is kind of key. Right. But yeah, I guess for your purposes, you could set it up really high, looking down, and that would that would be fine. Yeah. Well, I was kind of wondering for maybe like some of our viewers um, or listeners, uh, maybe putting it up high on like a chain link fence or something, you know, kind of trying to get it like almost like a security camera, like bearing down, trying to get something going past. Or... Right. So that might minimize the vegetation issues. It probably makes it less visible to people, too. So less vulnerable to theft and vandalism. Uh, yeah. A lot of people do it for that reason. I, I have seen people do that, put them really up high, looking down. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen folks. um like just out like hiking around in the woods um you know you'll see hunters they'll put them out and you know they'll have one down low but then they'll have like a thief cam looking down on it kind of thing they'll have a a cheaper one looking down on the better camera um just in yeah. case something happens yeah yeah um uh and i gotta admit i just 
Yeah, I just had a little uh, brain spasm for a so, second there. So uh, um, I, I got a question about uh, a question about placement, um, yeah. kind of angling wise. Um, yeah. I've had issues with uh, sun exposure, um, yeah. and, and then so that's one question. And the other question is, uh, um, you know, how to avoid that. And then the other question is, um, is it better to get um, have your camera set up so if it's a trail that the animal's coming to it? Um, like coming head on to the camera or yeah. uh, profile. Yeah. Okay, so let's do both of those. So the, the light one is easy. Um, so just think about, uh, well, first of all, if you face your camera into the sun, the setting and rising sun could, could make it trigger incessantly what you don't want. And the other thing is just think about when you take a normal photo, what, what lighting do you want on the animal? Do you want the light all behind the animal, you know, or do you want it all, you know, the light coming from behind you and illuminating the animal. And it's the latter that you want, right? So that's how you set your cameras up to, to make that most likely, which means generally uh, pointing that roughly to the north if it's possible. Um, that's only one consideration. And in a forested setting where there's a lot of shade, that might not matter so much, but in an open area, you might probably wanna be more mindful of um, uh, facing it to the north. Yeah. And the other thing is in terms of the trail, yeah, so um, it's generally not a good idea to like face your camera directly down the trail for a couple of reasons. One is uh, for in terms of aesthetics, um, the shots of an animal head on are just not as appealing as one that's a little bit off to the side. And the other is because of the way the sensors work in these cameras, they're not very good at detecting animals coming directly at it. They, they have these, um, they, they all, I think all their sensors work a little bit differently, but generally they have different zones and animals have to cross through more than one zone within that detection field in order to be, uh, to be detected. Um, and if it's just coming directly at the camera, it might not pass through more than one zone. So um, it's, a, it's better if you pull your camera off to the side a little bit and angle it in. And that also gives you an aesthetically appealing um, a photo too. You could face it perpendicularly into the um, into the towards the trail. Um, it might be a little bit less appealing aesthetically, and also if it's kind of hard to explain without a visual aid. But because of the geometry of the detection zone, an animal won't be in the detection zone for as long a time if you have it perpendicular. If you, I'd have to show you with a little triangle to do that. But, um, if you can just pull it up the side and angle it in, the animal is in the detection zone for longer and it passes through in such a way that it's very likely to be noticed by the sensor. So, yeah. Yeah, because I'm just kind of thinking like um, uh, some of the shots that I've taken, like, you know, get those perpendiculars. If you have a camera, it's on the slower side, like you only got it, like for your trigger delay, as you mentioned, is a, is a, is a second. I mean, that's... And if it's too close, yeah, yeah. if we're like a fifty, like a one-second camera with only a fifty-foot range, yeah. I mean, fifty feet's not a long ways. It's it's less than twenty yards. Yeah. Um. And if he comes in at like fifteen yard, yeah. or, you know, like maybe ten yards, he's gonna clear that before he could be gone. Yeah. Yeah. By the time it triggers. Yeah. Um. Yeah. yeah. These days, most of the cameras are fast enough to not have that problem. But, um. But yeah, it's generally that's a, that's a risk, I guess. 
Yeah, you can say, you know, instead of getting, on a deer, for instance, you might, you know, instead of getting the head, you're going to get the white tail. Yeah, you get a lot of tails that way. Yeah. You know, because he's going the other way. I mean, presence absence, you know, it's a white tailed deer, but. Yeah, that's right. You know, so maybe that doesn't matter. But if you want nicer birds, yeah. yeah. It'd be kind of nice, you know, to figure out maybe the gender. You know, you're looking for, you know, one buck and three does, or, you know, yeah. it's a 10 does out there. Yeah. Um, uh,. So I'm just thinking about this. Um, cause remember you're talking about the sun angle. Um, I remember that was one we used to fight with all the time. Uh, if you'd had your camera on a northern tree, you know, facing south, uh, especially in the winter time, you look at that, that low southern sun, and it just bakes that. It just you know one shot after another, you just get those flares. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, if you're into into the aesthetics of it, though, sometimes those create some beautiful shots. You know, with those sort oh, of. Oh, get some cool lens flare going. Oh yeah, it depends on what you want out of your camera, I guess. <laughs> Um, I had one in here, this uh, trick that we used to use, um, uh, just for, uh, angles. Um, so one trick that we used to do all the time is, you know, having broken sticks in our pockets. Yeah, we do that uh, too. Yeah, yeah, just so, I mean, just for, just, sometimes, you know, you'll come up and you have a leaning tree, yeah. you know, you put your camera on there, the camera's going to be going down so you can take a stick, you know, and stick it across the back like that, and it kind of flushes that up. Yep. Um, it makes it. Just so maybe viewers at home that don't know what we're talking about, um, you know, if they listen to this, uh, this podcast, they're not going to figure out what I'm doing with my hands, but go to YouTube, folks. <laughs> um, basically, what he's saying is just you, you can shove things like sticks, which are why yeah, they... Yeah, you're basically shimming it for the most yeah, part. Yeah, you can shove it behind the camera in a way that you make the camera tilt exactly how you want it. Yeah, uh, yeah that's what they can do. Um, they also make these brackets that you can screw into a tree, and it kind of they let you kind of angle the camera exactly how you want. Um, so, so that's a possibility. Uh, I hate carrying those around though; they're heavy. Right. Uh, and you want to, but you know, whatever way you use to to target the camera, you just want to before you walk away from it, you want to make sure that it's it's correct. You want to make sure that what you want to be centered in the field of view actually is centered. And um, if your camera has a viewing screen. Um, that that's helpful. I what I actually do. I don't use the viewing screen for that really very much because the screens are little, and depending on the lighting, it's hard to see. And sometimes, if I'm after a short animal, my um, my camera's so low to the ground that I have to lay down to look at the screen. So I carry another. You can use a cell phone camera or some other digital camera, and just put it right in front of the trail camera lens and take a photo. And then pick up your. Then you can just pick up um, your your uh, digital camera and look on its nice viewing screen and see what's centered, and then you know adjust it accordingly. So so that's what I do. I, I generally take great pains to you know center to position it exactly how I want to because it's a big waste of time if I come back months later and find out oh I I wasn't even focused on the right thing. So um, yeah. something so simple. I've never thought of that. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> always have the camera or the cell phone in my pocket anyway so yeah right um uh, so where do we go from here so just maybe go to the next step you know we've gotten the photos we've you know camera set up and we're going in uh you know we're gonna let's go see what we got kind of thing just you... i got one more thing oh yep positioning before we move move on sorry about that no no so no we... We talked about having it on trails and different points of interest. What about setting up, um, making them come to the camera, um, uh, like and stuff like that? Is, is it 
like baiting, uh, putting out some type of bait to draw That's them. Over. That's a big topic, baiting, baits and lures. Um, so, uh, something or something that's specific will it'll draw them to a specific spot. Okay, so you have trail coming down, you know, putting a feather here or something like that to get them to. Interact. Looking attractive more than a lure. Yeah. Well, yeah, so um, so I don't use lures and baits too often because what I'm usually interested in is the animal's natural behavior without me doing that. I want to see where it goes and what it does without me, you know, with me influencing that as little as possible. But that said, I have done that on occasion. And so just for your listeners, a, a, a lure is an attractant that's not edible. And a bait is an edible, it's just food, an edible attractant. So if you're going to use a bait, you need to know what your target animal eats. And if you're going to use a lure, so a lure can be, the most common one is like a scent lure, but there are also visual lures, like you were saying, a feather. Um, and there are even sound lures. I, I once used this little device that made the sound of a rabbit in distress and to get a bobcat to come, and it worked. But I felt bad about it because then there's nothing there for the cat to eat. So I actually don't like using those things too often because it, it's, it's a waste of energy for the animals to come to these lures. But that said, there are times when you want to do it. And um, just so people understand, you still need to, if you're going to use a lure, you still need to be able to figure out on your own where the animal is likely to go. Okay? You're not going to put, I, I'm not going to be able to put a, a, a scent lure for a Canada lynx down in Massachusetts and expect it to come from northern Maine, right? The situation where I use lures is, say, I, I, you know, one example was I, um, I wanted to get a really nice shot with my DSLR camera trap of a weasel. And so I found a weasel latrine on top of a, a log. And uh, so I knew that the weasel goes there, right? There's all these little weasel scats on there. But weasels move so quickly, I wanted something to make it just pause in front of the camera for like two seconds so I could get a decent photo. And so I put a little dab of a lure. I think I used something that's marketed as a Martin lure. Um, and it worked. The weasel came and sniffed it for a few seconds. I got my photo and that was it. I, I never went back there again. I took my camera out. Um, just again for your listeners, maybe not maybe not um, important so much in airport wildlife mm -hmm. biology, but just in general, um, repeated use of scents and lures near um, where there's other people can create a lot of human wildlife conflict. So if you're drawing predators in, for example, into your backyard so you can get nice pictures, but your neighbor has free ranging chickens, that's going to be a disaster. And usually what loses in that case is the wildlife. They're going to want to get rid of that animal. Um, so that's the cost of the nice photos that you got. So I just put that in for people because I just think you should think carefully about um, about using those things in, in, in some settings. But you know, a single use or just a couple of times in a certain area to get to get your photo or to see whatever behavior or document presence or whatever, um, that's you know that's fine. Um, I, don't know. I mean, I could talk. What, what do we want to know any more? We want to talk any more about sense and lures, or is that enough? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, are you good, Cody? Yeah, no, I I, uh, um, I did that um, one mainly to get the animals to slow down um, on, a, on a project that we were working on, and I I put put it uh, just some uh, um, it was more of a gland lure, yeah, uh, and it was 
fascinating the interactions that the animals were having with that rolling in it clean uh, yeah. in it uh, defecating everything you can think of it, it it was this new smell that they had never smelled before in the area and it did it did cause them to definitely react to it and slow probably slow down a little bit for for the camera as well that's kind of what i because it was in a spot that i knew coyotes traveled and yeah. But uh, I wasn't really getting it. It would it would be a picture here and there, but mostly blanks and and but it basically slowed them down. Right. Yep. But it was already a spot that they were coming through. I knew they were coming through there. I had tracks and and yeah. the, the layout of the land was, uh, was conducive to that. So yeah. Yeah. Because the only the only experience I have using that on a trail camera is the. The Fisher project they already cited before. Uh, we would um, receive uh, beaver carcasses from local trappers, uh, donated carcasses, and then we would use parts of those wrapped in chicken wire and strapped into a tree um, with a little bit of. Uh, it was another scent lure. I forget what what it was actually called. Uh, oh, Gusto. It was Gusto brand scent lure, and then we'd use that to to attract and hold Fisher in one area, and they would kind of come out and try to eat some. You know, they'd eat some of the beaver meat, then they'd move on. Um, but we had downsides to that because we never had a bear come in, even though we were in bear country, but we working in the wintertime, mostly when they were hibernating. Right. Uh, I think we only worked like two weeks into like when the, after like the first bear was confirmed out of its den that year. Um, but we used to have issues with raccoons, especially when it got warm out and the boars, the, the male raccoons started coming out. Um, you know, they come out earlier in the year for breeding and, uh, they would just destroy those those, yeah. bait, those bait sets. They didn't touch the camera, but um, when we would have um, uh, gun cleaning, like brass uh, uh, gun cleaning brushes or copper brushes um, to collect hair samples from the fisher, yeah. and they'll come through and just be just choked with big mats of gray hair. <laughs> those in the whole, like, you'd, just, you'd, be, you'd find chicken wire for 10 yards and just be oh, shredded. Um, uh, so, you know, you can definitely attract some animals that way. But uh, Yeah. Yeah, so another good point of what you said is that, um, yeah, it's not always the animal that you're after that, you know, that your target animal that comes to, you know, the baits and lures tend to attract a lot of different animals, you know. Yeah. So uh, if, if it could be good for general uh, general captures, but it's not necessarily going to get the animal that you put it out for. Um, no, for sure. And then, well, you think about the, um, the, the weasels you were talking about. Um, I, I got a photo somewhere. Well, the state does. New York State does. Um, it was a picture of an ermine sticking his head out right below the, like sticking out of, out of the snow. It was about it was like two and a half feet of snow on the ground that day. Yeah. But sticking his head out of the snow, out of the snow, right at the base of the tree. Yeah. And then it has a timestamp. And then two minutes later, you can see um, myself and my partner walking in the frame. So he was right there. He was under under our feet the entire time. But until we saw we had that camera, we didn't know he was there. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. We <laughs> that, was, that was a cool photo. That's very cool. Weasels can be tough to get because they're so they're so fast. They're they're oh. there and gone before the camera sees them. Yeah, I think we I think we got lucky. I think we had five weasels on camera that year, um, huh? in longs and short tails. Uh, but that was pretty cool. But um, so just because we were we're well past the one hour mark, <laughs> um, so I don't want to go back to, you know, we've gotten our photos. You know, our, our camera has our photos. Um, when you go in to check your cameras, uh, do you, 
Like, how do you? What's your process? Do you yank the car, swap one out, and walk out, or do you have a little? Do you carry one a, a, a photo checking device with you, or? Actually, so I mentioned before that I only buy cameras now that have viewing screens that allow me to watch videos and and to to review the photos right on the camera. Um, and I also take a digital camera with me um, that I can just if it's if it's only so I cannot view the videos on my digital camera. But I can view the photos, and it has it allows me. My digital camera allows me to go through them much more rapidly. So if it's photos, I put it in my digital camera, and I just rapidly go through them in the field. Maybe not all of them. If there's if there's fifteen thousand, but I want to get a sense. I do check in the field, um, if it if at all possible, because I want to get a sense of is this a good spot? Should I keep the camera here, or should I move it, or should I point it? Maybe maybe keep it here, but point it a little bit different way, or something like that. So yeah, I always check in the field um, to inform what I'm going to do next. But I also um, take that card home and download it on the computer so I can look at it on a bigger screen in case I miss stuff. So in the field, I just do a very quick check, um, although my husband would say it's very slow. <laughs> it can last forever. <laughs> he gets frustrated. But um, so, yeah. I'm curious, have you ever messed with those little uh, SD card readers that plug into your mobile devices? I haven't done that, no. I haven't done that. Yeah, I know they exist, but I haven't yeah. done that. Have you ever played with those, Cody? Um, I've had a couple models. I've gotten them cheap off of Amazon, and they don't. The interface with the uh, phone is not the best. Oh, really? Um, maybe because I for models, um, but I'd have it start downloading the pictures. And the way the iPhone, maybe it's because the iPhone too, but the way the iPhone, in order to see any quality of the pictures, you have to download them onto the phone. You can't like view pictures remotely you can but they're like a thumbnail and they're not really and then when i transfer over i'd lose connection quite often that could be just my issue but i've tried two viewers that way and, and i've had that issue um i've never tried like a, a dedicated um viewer though like uh one where the whole thing's your viewer where you take it into the woods so i'm i'm sorry about that um, I'm under the uh, um, the camp for swapping them out, but uh, I have uh, um, taken my digital camera with me and viewed them that way too, and that works pretty well. It's got a better quality screen and such. So um, I, I guess I've done a little bit of of both. It's not the dedicated version. Yeah, cause I, I mean, I always swap them out. Um, I've always just swapped. I always carry like a little. Um, uh, that's over my camera bag. I carry all my stuff is in my um my DSLR bag over there. But uh, I always carry a little uh, SD card wallet, like a little I think it's a Pelican brand. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, just for you know carrying cars. And, but I used to have it actually. I broke it. Um. I I snapped a little uh, part where it goes into your phone off. But I used to carry one of the um SD card adapters that went into your your battery port and your cell phone um in my iPhone. Uh, and I, I mean, I had some issues with it, but I always kind of, I always kind of liked it because I could just plug it in, look at them, and you know, I could go go back to my truck. Um, I'd have it just sitting in, the, in a cup holder in my truck. I'd reach over, plop it in the phone, go through, check all my cards. Because um, I was running, I think I was running a, a five camera line at the time. You know, I have them kind of uh, spaced around my my, uh, my property back in New York, um, and they were always kind of, I was, I always enjoyed the process, but. Um, I didn't know that some folks were having. I didn't know you were having issues with them. Uh, you, I mean, need, I, you must. You must need cell phone coverage in an area. See, I. I never. 
See, mine just opened with an app. Um, it was all offline. You just had like a special app or something, and it allowed you allowed went through there. Then you hit a button, you could save it right to your to your, to your camera roll, just like you're taking the photo with your iPhone or with your phone phone. You guys are probably much more phone literate than me. I'm still an older generation. <laughs> 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 um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I but a lot of these cameras now have pretty good viewing screens, and you can watch the videos on them. So it's it's actually you know fairly easy to just look at it in the camera, and uh, if you want to do that, I don't. Uh, and then decide. I would never just take it home, like not look at anything in the field, and take it home. Uh, you know, take the just replace the card because then you don't know until you get home whether that camera needs to be moved. Right. Well, um. You want to check your batteries when you check your camera, and oh, yeah. <laughs> you know about um. So the so they usually the the viewing screen has like a little what do you call it, a little battery meter to tell you about how much is left. Um, what's that? You're breaking up wicked, Cody. Yeah, I can't, I can't hear your, all right. All right, well, anyway, I'll just, I can't hear, I can't hear Cody right now, so I'll just keep talking. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, so it has a little battery meter on it, and the thing to know is that once it says around that only like 90% of the batteries left, it sounds like a lot, but they tend to die really quickly at that point. The decay curve um, for battery charge goes very gradually at first, very slowly, and then there's a steep decline. So if you're, if you're going to be checking your cameras every week, maybe it's okay to leave it until it's almost dead. Um, but if you're going to be checking them every few months, uh, what I do is as soon as it says 90%, I replace those batteries. Um, and then I, I save those. I don't just throw those out. I save those partially used batteries to like use for other devices or to use for cameras either in my yard or close to my yard where I can check it frequently. But something that, you know, I'm not going to get to for months, I want to make sure there are batteries in there that are going to last a long time. So just be aware of that battery decay curve. It's very gradual at first, but it only needs to go to about 90% before it starts to steeply decaying. Yeah, because I mean, um, just going off, I, I learned through the protocols, uh, the state protocols, and ours was 75. As soon as it hit 75%, you know, we, we um, do the same thing. You know, you'd, you'd save them, you know, We'd have a separate box. I mean, just but it had like a hundred something batteries in there, yeah. uh, just from ones that we ripped out of cameras. It still had seventy five percent on, you know, at least yeah. when it's, it was in the card. But you know, we were running in temperatures of of negative twenty degrees Fahrenheit, yeah. and you know, after seventy five, they just they just tank. Yeah, that's the thing. I'm in a cold climate too. You could probably get away with using them for for longer if you're in a warmer climate. But here in the winter, they drain more quickly. So I wouldn't. I wouldn't leave them in. I saw it saying 75. Yeah. 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 I think 75. I think that's a um, in cold climate. I think I think in the in the warmer climate, you probably let them get down to like 50, 40, something like that. But especially you know on an airport environment, um, you know you're gonna have access to them a little bit easier. You know you can check them every week if you have to. Or um, yeah. I, I think the longest that one will ever be allowed to soak without being choked uh, checked is. Uh, about a month, probably. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, so, months going to be yeah. a long time. Most of them are going to be weekly or biweekly. Yeah. 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 They don't get. They don't usually wind up with a long soak. Um, 
And then, so we were talking about uh, just kind of going back. Um, just want to make sure we're covering all our bases. We did talk about setting. You talked about taking on trees. Um, have you ever dealt with any of the devices for setting them out in the open? I know they have some have little stands or you yeah. can, like, set them out in the we field. Some other types of sets, yeah. I've used many different things. I, I don't like to carry around stuff when I'm going out because sometimes I have to hike pretty far to yeah. wherever my camera sites are. So what we try to, we meeting my husband and I, we, we do this a lot of this together. Um, we try to make use of whatever we can find on site. So um, we have built like tripods out of sticks that we find um, and, you know, sort of like use rocks that we find to kind of stabilize the base. Um, we, in certain environments, like in a desert, a rocky desert environment, we used to take, uh, this was, I think, in Nevada, we used to take um, climbing, these little climbing things, they're called walnuts. I don't, if you're not a climber, you're probably not, I'm not a climber well, either. I'm not familiar with those. Familiar, but they, people use them to like stick them into the cracks in the rock and then um, they, I guess they tie their climbing ropes to them and, and use them to, you know, get up the rock. But they, the point is, though, is that they they sort of clamp into the cracks and rocks. So we have actually used those to mount cameras directly to the rocks. <laughs> so whatever, yeah, there are, you know, depending on the kind of environment you're in. Oh, and we've also made our own posts. I found that the posts that you buy um, are just too flimsy. So if we are going to carry and say it's a really open environment, there won't be any sticks like in the desert or a prairie environment, and you're going to need a post, um, we make them, it'll be hard to, again, without a visual aid to de describe this, but what we found works really well is you get a long piece of rebar, maybe two feet long, and then a two by four piece of wood that's of whatever height you need. Generally, ours are never more than two feet high. We never need really high posts for what we do. Um, and then you you screw a hole up into the uh, the two by four, and then you thread the rebar into it. Is that are you following? Yeah, a little bit. And yeah. You can stick the rebar down into the ground, and you have a a sturdy wooden post that you're going to mount your camera to and the rebar can go deep down. And sometimes to make it really stable, we put in two parallel rebars uh, up into that um, post. So this is the wooden post, this is a two by four, this is the rebar, it's going in like that, or two rebars like that. Can you okay. guys see? Yeah. And, um, and then you can put your camera on that. Now, that obviously someone could steal that, they could just pull it up, but remember they would have to carry the whole contraption out the rebar and the post and the camera that's screwed onto it, which is also in a security box, which would be very, very awkward. So it's generally a great deterrence, even though it's not 100% foolproof, um, nor is a cable lock. People can cut those. But it's enough of a deterrent that we've never had anything like that stolen in, in that type of environment. So there are many, many ways. Just use your imagination. You can improvise with, with, with rocks and sticks or whatever you find on site, or you can carry stuff in. Uh, to the field, but generally I found that the posts for sale, the ones I've tried anyway, are just too flimsy. They're not, uh, they're not stable enough. Um, <coughs> the, uh, the type of soil there is to, you know, as to how stable, right? It's going to be. I've I've had issues with the diameter of the post being yeah. an issue trying to get support with that, 
And then uh, um, just one one thing, uh, anti-theft theft device that Kristen actually used when we, she was doing her grass research. Um, she was doing it outside of the We're losing you again, Cody. Yeah, I, I can't hear much Your book? Um, oh, oh, sure. I'd love to. Yeah. Um, are we recording right now, or are we just? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I haven't stopped. So. Yeah. Um, I'll in. All right. So basically, it's a it's a species by species account. Um, it covers about forty species, um, and I go through. Um, the tracks and sign of all the different animals with an emphasis on where the animal appears repeatedly in the landscape because that's what's important for a camera trapper. You want to be able to put your camera out and know that the animal's going to come back. So it's one thing, for example, to be able to identify a bear scat, um, but that's a bear scat isn't a good thing to target for a trail camera with a trail camera in order to get bear because they don't return to that same space. You know what I mean? But you know, another animal that creates latrines like a gray fox or an otter or a raccoon, they do come back to those spots. So it makes a good camera target. So it's it's track and sign and animal behavior, but specifically geared towards camera placement. It's basically it's a book you can use if you want to say study bobcats and you want to you know figure out where are good places to put the camera to get to to get bobcat or to observe interesting bobcat behavior. That's that's the that's the point of it. Yeah. So. Okay. Um. And where you know where can people pick up this book? It, Amazon is probably the easiest place. It might be in some bookstores, but you can get it on Amazon. So. All right. And then one more time, can you say the title again? I will even show it to you. It's Camera Trapping Guide. Here it is in front of my face. <laughs> <laughs> Track sign and behavior of eastern wildlife. And then, so that one's out now, and then, um, you know, post, we'll call it post-pandemic. Post-pandemic, we'll I'd like to do the same thing for Western wildlife, yeah. So, I, yeah. Western wildlife, like, what kind of species are you going to be, you know, kind of focusing on? There'll be some overlap, but there, there are a lot of species out there that we don't have out here. So, you have um, kangaroo rats, you have pronghorn, you have wolves. I covered wolves in the east, but it'll be more thorough in the west. You have... Cougars. I covered the Florida panther, but that's a very specific case of mm -hmm. of the same species. It's, it's really different information um, for the West. Um, elk. I did cover elk for Wisconsin, but again, you know, it'll be a little bit different for the West. Um, what other things? So coatis. I did coatis. We don't have them in the East. Um, what else is specific? Ringtails, we don't have any. There are different kinds of rabbits. Um, yeah. Deer are different. You have the, the uh, black-tailed and mule deer out there. Uh, bighorn sheep and uh, mountain goats and grizzlies. We don't have those in the east. Um, so there'll be some overlap because some of the species are in common, but there are going to be a lot of species that are specific to the west that we don't have here. So. Right, because I'm hearing, like, like uh, you know, very, like... <laughs> very specialized like um like kawadi like that's one that i don't i think a lot of folks didn't realize we have in north america let alone in right. the u.s right yeah that was it's mostly just in arizona maybe a little bit in a couple other states too 
But yeah, so we went down to Southeast Arizona and did a lot of tracking and camera trapping down there. Yeah. Um, uh, like uh, based out of Tucson kind of area? Uh, yeah, this, actually the, the, the mountain, the, what do you call them, the Sky Island Mountains around there. We, that, yep, that's Sky Islands, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, prairie dogs out there. There are a lot of species out west that we do not have east of the Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, we're mostly I'm mostly done with the southwest. What I need to still do is the northwest and some of the prairie species. Um, and once I get to travel again, <laughs> we <have to> finish <laughs> it. But it's right for now. No, that is very I cool. Say, I, I should say, though, that a lot of people in the West have bought this Eastern guide. And because there's a lot of overlap, they still find it useful. But it doesn't have sort of like the iconic Western species that we don't have in the East. Right. I mean, species like like elk, um, you know, it's... It, it does I, have elk. It's not a very thorough chapter because there's only a little bit of elk and little spots in the Eastern right. US, But it doesn't have bighorn sheep at all. And it doesn't have coatis at all skunk species that you have there that we don't have here so right and here in arizona we have what four different species of skunks yeah um yeah. was it spot spotted striped hog nose and hooded yeah hooded correct yeah yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's just here in arizona um armadillos you know we don't have any here but you know western species that's one species i left out <laughs> i should have <laughs> i should have used that because they're in the southeast but uh I just didn't get around to it, and you know you can't do everything, so I didn't cover those. But they're really interesting. Yeah, oh yeah, they're they're a cool little animal. Um, so you've got a book. Do you happen to have a website? Maybe folks can go visit. Yeah, I have um, a website. It's called Winterberry Wildlife, um, and it's where I I have my blog. Uh, it's also where I advertise my. Um, my programs, my outdoor programs, and when I do presentations, um, I, you know, my schedule's on there. Although it's, again, because of the pandemic, everything's on hold, so there's nothing current on there. But once I'm able to um, travel around again, I'll update that. So one more time, you said that was, you said winterberry, like the season and then berry? Uh, no, it's all one word, like the plant, winterberry. It's called winterberry wildlife. Winterberry wildlife, okay. Yeah, if you just um, Google that, or if you just Google my name, it'll come up. Yeah. Right. Um, and then one other thing, one. Oops, no, sorry. Go ahead. Say, um, for for listeners, they might be interested. I run this really really cool Facebook group. It's called Trail Camera Photos and Videos, and um, I run a very tight ship. <laughs> <laughs> it's very tight. Trust so, me. So, um, the uh, what uh, what I was. By that, I mean it's not one of these groups where people get out of control and fight. You know, I nip all that stuff in the bud. So it really stays on focus, and people post some really nice quality stuff from all over the country and even all over the world. So if you want to see a lot of interesting wildlife that people are getting on their cameras, and everybody, you know, it, all kinds of people are involved from scientists to hunters to backyard naturalists and anything in between. So it's really, um, it's a great group. I love doing it, and I learn a lot myself by looking at what other people I mean, it's really cool. I mean, that's well, actually, that's how I found out about you was is uh, joining that the Facebook group. And uh, um, I know it's one of my favorites on, on Facebook right? just because it is, you know, it's not everybody's just not button heads. You right. know, it's you know, it's that's that's what when I, they do. They get kicked out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely keeps everybody in line and it definitely makes me enjoy it that much more. Um, so thinking about the, the photos themselves, do you happen to have maybe a photo that you're most proud of or, you know, maybe had an like, interesting story or something tied to it? Um, 
Probably my very favorite photo is the one that I've had as the header for that group for a long time. It's a picture of a badger in Nevada sagebrush with the mountains in the background. And the reason that's my favorite is that it when you know, sometimes you have a vision for how you want a photo to be. It's like, oh, if the animal just did that, the background would be it would be the most beautiful photo. And the, he did it. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. You know, he came in and he's, you know, was positioned himself right where I wanted him. And it's just it just worked out beautifully. So I, I targeted a badger den in the in the sagebrush. Um, and I, I think it was an old one. Um, so it, it wasn't clear that the badger was still there, but they do sometimes revisit their old dens. And um, and I just I positioned the camera so it had that beautiful mountain backdrop and the animal came and just posed. He just stood there and posed looking right in the camera. It was just it came out perfectly. Um, that's probably my favorite. <laughs> That's cool. Um, I mean, folks can obviously go to to Facebook to see that photo, but would you mind maybe um, if you can like send me a copy of that? I can put that. I can put it over here, and then maybe folks can see that photo when they watch the the YouTube. Okay, sure. Yeah. No, as long as you don't mind. I mean, folks. I mean, hopefully, folks will be going to the Facebook group and checking it out too. But how do I find you on YouTube? I I searched your name, and I didn't think I came up with. Uh, it's just Airport Wild. Oh, it's called. It's under that. Okay, it's on Airport yeah. Wild. Just, yeah, my name. Yeah, my name is a different personal channel. <laughs> uh, all right, Airport Wild. And so, how is this going to be like a video on 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 YouTube? And then. Yeah, the, yeah. So we'll have the video component. Yep, exactly. We'll have the video component um, of this on on YouTube, and then the audio. Okay. Um, I'll rip the video part away, and I'll keep the audio, and then uh, that'll go on as a as a standard podcast. Okay. All right, sounds good. I can send that to you. Yeah, so I just hopefully, folks, if they're listening to this on podcast, this just means they got to go to YouTube and to, to see the photo. <laughs> so drive our views up on YouTube. I see. Okay. <laughs> um, so we got Cody back. Yeah, phone battery guy. Oh, uh, yeah, that'll do it. So it was getting slow. My processor on the phone must have been slowing down, so um, messing up. But uh, um, Jan, I, I really want to thank you for coming on today. It was very informative. Um, I do have one question, and uh, so I have a, a my mother-in-law is a trail cam nut, um, oh, and yeah. I think she would love your book. And I would like like to know if you could, uh, um, if I bought the book directly from you instead of Amazon if I could have you sign it to her? Uh, yeah, I can do that. Okay, yeah. do you have them in stock? I do have, I do have a few here, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I can do that. Can, like, <laughs> message me where to send it to and what her name is, and yeah, I can do that. Oh, great, thank you so much. She's going to be thrilled listening to this podcast, and then... Oh. oh, this is right up her alley. Yeah, yeah, she works with the company, too, so she's our... Uh, the basically she's a uh, the bookkeeper for the company, so uh, um, you know I've learned a lot. She she usually actually does all of our trail camera purchasing because um, okay. she knows more about it than frankly I do. So I I have been using them a long time, but I haven't really taken the time to you know become an expert in and how they operate and stuff. I pretty much just put them down and watch yeah. the you yeah. know the base of it. So yeah. um, my first one go back to probably 95 um 95 or 96 i bought my first one saved up it probably cost me 
$500 and it was uh, actually two units. It was the, uh, I think it was a, a trail timer was the name of it. And it had one unit and then it had a wire that would connect to this other sandwich looking thing. And you would put an actual camera in there and it would have a button on top and it would actually push down to take the, take the, take the picture. So wow. I've been, I've loved using them since then. So, but uh, thank you so much for coming oh. and sharing. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for thanks for inviting me. It was good. Fun. All right, so I guess we'll use that one as, as the, the ending instead. But uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm, well, I'm still recording. I'll just it'll end when we when we hang up, anyways. But uh, no, I mean, thank you. I mean, uh, can't really say enough. Thanks for for agreeing to do this and you know, coming on. And I I know I wouldn't lie. I didn't know about the heat portion of the, I thought it was just straight motion sensor. Then you talk about the different heat and, uh, yeah. uh, you know, the plants and, and all that's one issue I've had a lot in, um, when I was back East, when I lived back East was, uh, we get plant growth from a camera, you know, it start waving back and forth and you just got picture after picture after picture of nothing. Yeah. Right. right. But, just, uh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. No. Well, um, I'm just glad that Cody was able to jump on as well. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure if you were gonna be able to make it or not today. Never know where I'm gonna be. I'm in actually in Rhode Island right now, so. Ah. Oh, okay. All right. Thanks. All right. All right. Thank you. Take care. Yeah. Thanks and thanks again and uh. Yeah, maybe we can do this again sometime. All right. Cool. Thanks. Bye. All right. Should I hang up now, or are we? Uh, yeah, yeah. Just to hang up. It'll it'll close. Okay. All right.